0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn, turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. We have been studying the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 13 through 17, Upper Room Discourse, all taking place on Thursday night of the Passion Week. Five full chapters in the Gospel of John on one profound night. Last week we saw Jesus' care and compassion for his disciples. He's been doing that this entire time. He's told them, I need to leave. I'm going to be gone. Also, one of you is going to betray me. Also, one of you, Peter, you're going to deny me. And by the way, where I go, you cannot come with me now. His disciples are discouraged, despairing, they're struggling. And so Jesus is going to answer them over the course of these uh, verses that we 're going to study he 's going to answer their question, "Why is it good that you leave? in fact, Jesus is going to say it 's not just good that I leave it 's better for you that I leave it 's to your advantage if I stay, something can 't happen that needs to happen, and that 's the spirit being given to you so this, these chapters are are, are very uh, Trinitarian in their theology they 're beautiful they 're rich, and they 're all telling us that there is no loss with Jesus leaving. And they deal with the transition of Jesus departing to go be with the father. Last week, we looked at Philip's comment in verse eight. Lord, show us the father. We want to see the father. If you're the way, the truth and life, we want to see the father. Show us the father. If you're the way to the father, no one gets to the father except through you. Show us the father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen everything that it means to be God because I am God. We looked at the person of Jesus last week. We saw that to see Jesus is to see God, to hear the words of Jesus is to hear the voice of God and to see the works of Jesus is to see the works of God. Philip was asking, I I need a vision. What I'm going through right now is so troubling to my soul. I need to see something. And if I could see something, then I would be a little bit more okay as I go through this trial. I need a demonstration of God, and that will be enough to secure my belief and as Philip asks for sight, Jesus teaches on faith. You don't need anything more. I've given you enough. The question is, do you believe? So Philip, to see God at work, all you need is to hear Jesus speak. We asked our own hearts, do we love the scriptures? We become so discontent with only having the scriptures. Do we love the scriptures? Do we love Jesus as revealed to us in the scriptures? Or do we say we need something more? We need a vision. We need a sign. We need something else. Faith alone. We can't do that. We, we need sight. We saw that our faith increases proportionally to our understanding of Scripture. Scripture grows our faith. So we ask with the disciples in Luke 17, 5, and increase our faith, not increase our sight, not give us a vision. We have the Word of God, and it is enough. It is enough. So Jesus says, I am God. I am God. You must believe in me. And if you can't take me at my word, then at least believe through the works, the works that I have done, the signs that I've done point to me being God. And then we're going to pick it up in verses 12 through 14. I really wanted to do these two sermons together and you'll, you'll see why they, they connect. But we need to spend time on these verses. These verses are so important. Even as we read them, we're going to read them together and ask God's blessing on our time. As we read them, you can see There could be a misunderstanding of these verses so easily, and people tend to do that. These are some of the most abused verses in the Bible. So we need to spend time and ask God to clarify the words of his son to us this morning. Let's start in verse 7, John chapter 14, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. So Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, whoever believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Father, these are rich verses. These are profound promises. These are so amazing, almost too good to be true. And that's why Jesus is going to say to his disciples, truly, truly, I'm about to say something that is so profound. Listen up, pay attention. It's so unbelievable that you might just... Let these words go by and think that's too good to be true. Father, thank you that these words are not too good to be true. They are too good for us to live out on our own, but they are true. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts to open our eyes to see your word clearly. As the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. We want to see and see, not like the Pharisees who see and don't see. We want to hear and hear. We want to see and see. We cannot understand these verses apart from your spirit. So spirit, please be be glorified. Be pleased to work in us to understand. Give the gracious gift of illumination to give us an understanding of these verses. All that Jesus would be glorified in our midst. We pray in his name. Amen. These verses, verses 12 through 14 have been so abused, as I said earlier, to to make faith man centered. These words have been used to make faith about us, man centered instead of God centered. If we're honest, if you just read these verses, that you could potentially come away with thinking, I can do greater works than Jesus on my own strength. I can ask him for anything. He's a genie, he'll give it to me. And so these verses have been used. To teach a self-fulfilling faith. We do what we want to do to get us what we want. We do things to get us what we want. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. We saw last week the person of Jesus. This week we're going to see the promises of Jesus. So we saw the person of Jesus last week. If you see Jesus, you've seen God. If you hear Jesus speak, you hear the voice of God. If you see the works of Jesus, you've seen the works of God. This week, we're just going to split this text up into the three promises that Jesus gives. Profound, amazing promises of Jesus. Promise number one, we will do the works of Jesus. The works that he has done, we will do them. That's in verse 12a. Number two, second promise, we will do greater works than Jesus. Verses uh, 12b, verse 12b. And Number three, whatever we ask in Jesus' name, he will do it. Verses 13 through 14. So let's just take those promises one at a time, being careful, being slow. That's why I wanted to slow down and make sure we understand these verses in their context. So he starts by saying the first promise, whatever Jesus has done, the works that he has done, we will do those works too. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. So, truly, truly, it's so important. It's so powerful. Listen up. Pay attention. Uh, you are in your despair in the upper room. You're struggling. I want you to pay attention. Eyes up. Look at me. Those kinds of things. Listen up. And what I'm about to say to you is so important. And it is a promise, truly, truly. Amen and amen. This is going to happen. He has to say those words because the words that he's about to say are so unbelievable. We might just go, eh, it's not going to happen. What is the promise? He who believes, my Bible says, he who believes in me, um, I think a better translation is whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me, literally it's in the present participle, whoever keeps on believing in me, whoever is working in such a way that they keep on believing in me, they will have this promise. Now, that phrase, whoever believes in me, it's shown up four other times in the Gospel of John. Listen to the promises that are attached to whoever believes in me John chapter 6 verse 35 whoever believes in me shall never thirst that's present participle whoever keeps on believing in me shall never thirst John 7:38 whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water John 11:25 whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and John 12:46 whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness now those are supernatural for sure we 'll we'll have a, a river of, of life that 's flowing out of us, an eternal spring water of living water we won 't remain in darkness anymore anymore. we will die, but when we die, we will never die, we will live, but at the same time though, those are supernatural things they 're not they 're not incredible in the sense of it doesn 't make sense it 's mind boggling how can that be? They totally make sense they 're very simple if you believe in Jesus, these Things will just simply happen to you. And now we add a fifth. John adds, whoever believes in me, you will do the works that I'm doing. That's the one that doesn't seem like the others, right? The others make sense. "Eh, we'll, We'll be satisfied. We'll have life. This is great. This is awesome. And by the way, you'll do all the works that I'm doing. That's the one that we scratch our head. But in context of John, this is what every single believer will experience. Whoever, all of the other promises were whoever believes whosoever. So I say all that to say, these promises are not just for the disciples in the upper room. These promises are for you. And for me, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these promises are for you, any believer. This is you and I. In fact, the reason we needed to slow down on these verses, I, I believe that we can flip this statement around. If you are not doing what these verses are telling us, a believer does, you have real reason to question whether or not you're truly saved. If we are not doing the things that are promised to us, whoever believes in me, these things are going to happen. So if those things aren't happening, maybe we don't believe in Jesus. So what's the promise? First promise, whoever believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. You will do the works of Jesus if you're a believer. Now, the question is, what does works mean? What does works mean? There is danger. There is immense danger in only equating works with miracles. I don't think that it doesn't include miracles, but if you only say works equals the miracles that Jesus did, there is danger. But most people interpret that verse that way. The works, the miracles themselves, the signs, the wonders, those things are are things that you and I can do. So they go back in John, and John has given us many signs and wonders. John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. John chapter 4, he read the mind of the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4, he healed the official son. He healed the crippled man who'd been crippled for 38 years in John 5. He fed the 5,000, which is more likely the 25,000, with five loaves and two fishes in John 5. He walked on water in John 6. He healed the man that had been born blind in John 9, and he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. He's done amazing works, And so many people will just say works equals those things. We will do those things. Now, again, I don't think that it doesn't mean that, but I think it doesn't mean only that. So does Jesus mean if you haven't walked on water, you're not a believer? If you take works to equal miracles, I've never performed a miracle. I'm not a miracle worker. Just ask my wife when something goes wrong in our house. If I was a miracle worker, I wouldn't be calling people up and saying, help, my house is going to explode. I'm not a miracle worker. So if Jesus means you have to do the miracles that I'm doing, frankly, I think a lot of us wouldn't be saved. I've never walked on water. I've never raised anybody from the dead. So what does he mean? We can go a lot of places. This is why, I mean, this is a sermon in and of itself, but just one place I want you to write down we could go to is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think the rest of the New Testament does not interpret Jesus' words that way, to say that works equal miracles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but Paul tells us that the church is given many different gifts, and some people do gifts of the signs and wonders and the miracles, apostolic age gifts, signs and wonders, miraculous gifts, but not everybody does those gifts. Even in first Corinthians 12, Paul is saying not everybody's going to do those. There are some people that are given gifts or works to be able to do in a completely different capacity, but not every single believer has to do signs and wonders. So I don't think Jesus would say every single believer has to do miracles. And then Paul would say, not every believer has to do miracles. New Testament works together. But just inside John's context, number two, a second reason why I don't think that works equals only miracles inside of John's context. Just go back to verse 11. Jesus says, believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, Jesus already defined works for us in chapter 10. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his work. So we would think that Jesus would say the words that I'm speaking to you, those aren't my words. They're the father's words. But Jesus says the words that I'm speaking to, they're not my words. They're the father's works. So in context, works equal words for Jesus. Not only miracles. But in verse 11, he defines what the works are given for the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the whole point of them, Jesus says, I've done these things so that I could point you to the Father and point you to the truth that I am God. So works equals anything that's pointing to the truth of Jesus Christ and to the Father. Works equals anything that's pointing to the truth. What Jesus is saying in verse 11 is, my works that I've done have pointed you to truth. When I do works, they help you believe. I'm doing things that point you to the Father. So verse 12, in context, at the most foundational level, the least that verse 12 could mean is that the works that Jesus has done in pointing to the Father, in pointing his disciples to the truth, we will do those same works in pointing people to the truth. By the way that we live our lives, just like the way that Jesus did everything, everything that he did to point to The Father and to point to the truth that he was truly God Every believer is going to be pointing to God. Every believer is going to live a life that points people to God Every Christian does that if you're not doing that if that's not happening in your life, you probably aren't saved Jesus says whoever believes in me If you've been pointed by my works to saving faith in me, then you're going to point others by your works to saving faith in Jesus as well. He says, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be gone in a little while, but you are going to be here and I'm going to give you power to do what I've been doing the entire time I've been here to represent God the father to a lost and dying world. Remember again, in context, chapter 13, he says, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Your love is a work. Not just miracles, it's the way you live your life in such a way that you're pointing to the truth of Jesus Christ being God, pointing to the gospel, pointing to the fact that Jesus is better than anything that this world has to offer. Does it mean more than this? Does it mean more than just the way you live your life? Potentially. But I'm still skeptical for a number of reasons, but just one, back in John chapter 10, verse 25. The phrase, the works that I do, it's only used one other time in the New Testament, and Jesus uses it here in John 14 and one other time in John 10. And he says, the works that I have done, the works that I do, I do to testify. They testify the truth about me. They're witnessing the truth about me. Works are meant to testify the truth. Think of Matthew 5, verse 16. That others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What's the good work that's there? Being poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, um, praising God and rejoicing when you're persecuted. Not signs and wonders. Not miracles in the sense of external miracles. So every Christian does this. The first promise that Jesus gives us is, I'm going away, but if you believe in me, you'll carry on the work that I'm doing. You're going to point other people to God. You will do it. We will be the aroma of Christ. We will be the light of the world. We were dead and now we're alive. We are created for good works. We read that a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. We were created for good works that we would walk in. Those good works are not only miracles. They are a life put together with words and deeds that help people believe in Jesus. Every Christian has a life that points to God. That treasures Jesus in such a way that other people say that person is about God. That's what Jesus is saying. So he promises, whoever believes in me, he will do the works that I'm doing. He's going to keep on doing the works that I'm doing. Just because I'm gone doesn't mean that the work stops. The mission continues. Promise number two, he says, it doesn't just continue. You'll do greater works than I have done. That's another reason why I think we can logically say works doesn't equal miracles. Some people say it does, and we will do, point number two, promise number two, we will do greater miracles than Jesus himself did. If this verse, when Jesus says, greater works than these he will do, if this verse means that we will do more miraculous miracles than Jesus did, I don't think anyone's ever been saved. If you have to be saved to do greater work, or if you have to do greater works to be saved, nobody has done a greater work than Jesus People raise people from the dead, right? We see that in the book of Acts. Paul raises somebody from the dead. But nobody has raised themselves from the dead. That's impossible. Only God can do that. And Jesus did that. So that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, you will do more spectacular miracles than I do. He's saying, you will do greater miracles. Miracles in the extent of the miracles, not greater in kind, greater in the extent, greater in the extent of the miracles. There's a huge clue to tell us that the clue is in the end of verse 12, because I go to the father, you will do greater works than I'm doing because I'm leaving. Why is that a clue? Because since Jesus leaves, he can give us the Holy Spirit. That's what he's going to say in the next couple chapters. He's going to say, because I leave, it's better for you that I'm gone because I will give you the spirit. The spirit can help you do things that I was limited to being able to do. I couldn't do certain things. Jesus had limitations when he lived on the earth. He couldn't always be with his disciples. He couldn't be in two places at once. Though he was omnipresent as God, he surrendered the independent exercise of that to the Father. So if the Father wanted him to be that way and to use his omnipresence, he could totally do that. But he surrendered all of those, uh, the independent exercising of all of those um, attributes to God, the Father. But if if he leaves, he can send his Spirit. And if he sends his Spirit... He will be with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. He could not say that promise while he was on the earth about his own relationship with his disciples. I will never leave you or forsake you. He's about to leave them. He's about to die on the cross and no longer be with them. But when he rises from the dead and he says, I'm going to ascend into heaven, that's when he says, I will be with you always. Because now that I'm gone and I give you my spirit, he'll never leave you. I'll be with you wherever you go. John chapter 14, verse 16, the helper will come if I leave. The helper will come Guys, I just we're going to get to these verses in a little bit. I just have to say, I love and cherish the fact that the Holy Spirit is called our helper and not our observer. He doesn't just sit there and go, Mm-mm, nope, that's wrong. Nope, not doing it right. He says, you're not doing it right. Let me help you. He jumps in and helps us. He's not an observer. He's a helper. That's why John chapter 14, verse 26 says that we're not going to be left alone because the helper the comforter is going to come. And that's why Jesus says in John 16, verse 7, it's to your advantage that I leave because I will give you the Spirit. So when Jesus says in the end of verse 12 that you're going to do greater works than I do because I go to the Father, that's a clue to tell us this isn't greater miracles, greater in, in the kind of miracles. This is greater in the extent because we're given the Holy Spirit. So there's three ways in which... We will do greater work than Jesus. Number one, it's greater in extent by the number of people doing it. It's greater in extent by the number of people doing it. At this point in time, only 11 people, 12 if you include Jesus. Um, Judas did a little bit of it, but I'm not including him here. Those are the only people that did these works. Pointing to Jesus as the son of God. But when Jesus leaves and we are given the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two, we see this in the apostolic age flowing through so many other people going out into the world. So there's more people. It's 11 in the upper room, but it's going to be thousands. It's going to be millions today of believers doing the works that Jesus did, pointing others to God, the father. It's greater in extent as far as the number of people doing it. It's also greater in extent, number two, as far as the number of people responding to it. It's greater in extent of the number of people doing it, and it's greater extent by the number of people responding to it. Just think about Acts chapter 2. We read it in Family Bible Hour this morning. More people came to faith in Jesus through the disciples' teaching just days after his ascension that had ever been converted in his entire earthly ministry. That's the fulfillment of this promise. 3,000 people converted in one moment in Acts chapter 2. You never see that in the Gospels. You see the exact opposite. All the crowds are saying, we want nothing to do with Jesus. And so Jesus tells the disciples, don't worry, when I leave, guess what? You're going to do greater works. You're going to get more people to follow the Gospel message. Leon Morris says it this way. What Jesus meant when we see in the narrative of Acts, or what Jesus meant we see lived out in the narrative of Acts. Number one, there are a few miracles of healing But the emphasis in Acts is on the mighty works of conversion. On the day of Pentecost alone, more believers were added to the little band of believers than throughout Christ's entire earthly life. There we see a literal fulfillment of greater works than you you shall do. Number two, during his lifetime, the Son of God was confined in his influence to comparatively small sector of Israel. After his departure, his followers were able to work in widely scattered places and influence much larger numbers of people. But they did it all on the basis of Christ's return to the Father. They were in no sense acting independently of him. On the contrary, in doing their greater works, they were his agents with his power flowing through them. So greater in the extent of the number of people doing the works, greater in extent of the number of people responding to the works. And finally, number three, and Leon Morris um, already brought it up, greater in extent geographically, greater in extent geographically, you will do greater works in the world than I have ever done, Jesus is saying. Jesus' entire ministry was in a tiny little country, 263 miles north and south, 71 miles east and west. That's all. Jesus lived in Israel and ministered in that space. For Israeli fighter pilots today, if you fly east to west across the eastern border of Israel to the western border, it will take you two and a half minutes. Done. Turn around, go back, turn around. That's got to be a very boring assignment. If you're the Israeli pilot that covers the east to west territory, just back forth, back forth, back forth. Just two and a half minutes. Most of Jesus' ministry wasn't even in the entirety of Israel. It was in just a little 60 mile long and a few miles wide. But now it's throughout the whole world. Now his ministry has literally gone worldwide. We are pretty much the exact halfway point from Israel around the globe. The gospel has gone halfway around, all the way around the world. That's a greater work than Jesus could have ever done. So Jesus is leaving the spreading of the gospel to his disciples as he goes to the Father. He's not leaving the spreading of turning water into wine to his disciples. He's leaving the spreading of the gospel. Chapter 15, verse 26, when the helper comes, he's going to testify about me, When the Helper comes, he's going to give you truth to testify about Jesus. Not when the Helper comes, he's going to give you great signs and wonders and miracles to do. This is such a rebuke on our values. We tend to read these verses and we tend to think, man, I'm going to do greater miracles than Jesus did. It becomes very physical. Look at our values versus God's values. We love the physical. We love the the visceral. We love the the mysterious and the, the, the miraculous. God says, that's no big deal. It's a piece of cake to do those things. What God values is salvation. That's a greater miracle than any external miracle Jesus ever did. Miracles are temporary. Regeneration, the miracle of regeneration is eternal. Even when Jesus did the, fear, the physical miracles that he did, he usually tells people, you remember what he told? don't tell anybody that I did that. I don't want to be known primarily as a a, a magic worker here. I don't want to be a magician in Israel, a miracle healer. No, I want to be known as the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. After his transfiguration, he told his disciples, don't tell anyone what you saw until after I've been raised from the dead. Then the whole good news, the gospel is complete. Jesus' miracles were incomplete good news. The gospel is not that Jesus could heal your diseases The gospel is that he can save sinners from hell. There's no greater work possible than the conversion of a soul. It's greater than the dead being raised physically. Leading someone to forgiveness of sins is a greater work than making a lame man walk because the latter is temporary and the former is eternal. Even just at at Shepherds Conference, I I had an amazing conversation with somebody and these verses were in my mind. This is a pastor from Russia and we were talking about um, persecution that's been going on um, a, a while ago, and now, again, it's being brought back. We're talking about the persecution that he's facing, and, and he was telling me the ways in which they've been delivered from persecution. Miraculous ways. Like, God works in insanely crazy ways, and he's telling me these stories, and I kept saying, man, that's a miracle. That's unbelievable. That's a miracle that God freed you or, or kept you safe in the middle of something that you totally should have been persecuted. And the pastor, as I kept saying, that's a miracle, that's amazing, that's a miracle. The pastor said, it's not a miracle. A miracle is what happens when somebody comes to saving faith in Jesus. That's a miracle. Like these pastors don't even use miracle For these signs and wonders, these crazy ways that God is delivering them from persecution. They say, that's not a miracle. That's a piece of cake. And God doesn't have to do that if he doesn't want to do that. What is truly miraculous is when a dead sinner who hates God begins to love God and cherish him above all things and has newness of life brought into his heart. That is a miracle. So Jesus says, because I go to the Father, you'll do greater works. You'll, the message of the gospel will be multiplied, not my miracles. The message of the gospel will be multiplied. So, promise number one, you're going to do the same works that I'm doing. Promise number two, you're actually going to do them in greater ways than I'm doing. Promise number three, we're going to deal with this quickly because we're going to get to this promise over and over and over again in chapter 15 and 16. Promise number three in verses 13 through 14. Whatever we ask in Jesus' name, he's going to do it. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, our our selfish fleshly mind uh, is betrayed by our typical hermeneutic, our interpretation of this verse. We turn this verse into God will give me anything I want. And, we, and then we just say, well, in Jesus' name, that becomes the Christian abracadabra. Just if I use that, then I can get whatever I want. He promised me I want a Porsche in Jesus' name. Boom, abracadabra, p- Porsche. There are many professing believers that claim that's what this verse means. One of the reasons why they claim that is there seems to be no other condition here. There seems to be no condition like you need to do these things. It's just, hey, if you pray in Jesus's name, you'll get whatever you want. There's no condition like in chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, then you can ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. So you have to abide in Jesus. There's no condition like Mark chapter 11, verse 24, which says if you do not have faith or if you do not believe, you will not get what you're asking for. Or James chapter 1, you have to ask without doubting. Otherwise, you will not get what you're asking for. There's a lot of conditions in the Bible, but there is no condition for praying here except for one. Most people miss it, even though it's stated twice. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So in my name is not abracadabra. In my name is the condition. This is the condition. It's given to us twice. What does it mean? In harmony with what Jesus has revealed about himself. Consistent with his person. Acting in accordance with his will. Another condition that John's going to give us, which I believe is an exposition of what Jesus is saying right here, is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So John takes in my name, and explains that for us in accordance with the will of his person and his work. In my name is not abracadabra. In fact, in my name filters out a whole host of the requests that we would normally ask for. Just four ways in which in my name becomes a filter for the way that we pray. Number one, in my name, Jesus is saying, for the fame of me, For my fame, for my glory, Jesus is saying. That rules out probably a a low rough estimate is a trillion requests that I would have for myself. For the fame of God's name, for the fame and the glory of God's name. In my name rules out anything that would exalt me. Number two, it rules out anything that would exalt my own worth. In my name, because of my worth, because of who I am, Jesus is saying. So let Jesus' worth, not ours, shape our requests. So for his fame and his glory, because of his worth, not our own, he is central, not us. Number three, on the basis of the payment that he's going to make on the cross, we can't come to him without the gospel, and we need the gospel to shape every request that we would ask. And number four, according to God's sovereign wisdom, not our will, but his be done. It's not about us. This is not a man-centered, man's faith-centered request. This is God-centered. And again, just to qualify it in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the father may be glorified in the son. It's not about you. It's about God being glorified. God definitely does not give us everything we ask for. You've all experienced that. God loves us way too much to give us everything we ask for. I personally think that I know when my kids should be saved. I do. I think I know the exact moment and time and date. And I will ask God, please, at a young age, I have to pray that so many times that I've heard Chelsea pray that sometimes at a young age. Please bring me to saving faith in Jesus. I think I know when God should save my kids. But I'm not sovereign, and this verse does not turn me into a sovereign. Whatever I ask in the name of Jesus, he'll do it for me. Like now I'm on the throne, and I get to determine when things should happen. Back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. God has given us good works that we should walk in. He's prepared those works beforehand that we should walk in them. I think what Jesus is saying here is ask for whatever you need to help you do those things. Whatever power you need to help you do those works that I've prepared for you, ask it, and I'll help you. We're not left alone. I'm leaving you, but I will help you. I'm going to be gone, but I'm going to help you. Notice verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. And then end of verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's not, if you ask anything in my name, it's going to be done for you. He personally says, I'm going to make it happen in your life. What comfort this would be to his disciples. His disciples have heard him say, I'm leaving and you can't follow me where I'm going right now. But if you ask me anything in my name, I will personally see to it that it's done. I'm not leaving you. I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you. You think Jesus wants you to fight against sin? You think that's consistent with his character? Ask him for help. You don't have an observer saying, why are you doing that again? You have a helper that wants to jump in and say, let me help you fight sin. I think Jesus wants you to glorify the father. You think Jesus wants your love for him to grow and have greater affection for him than anything in this world. You think Jesus wants you to love his church, love the bride and have an affection for her that's undying. Of course he does. And ask him for those things. Ask him for those things. Three amazing promises. We will do the works of Jesus. We'll do greater works than Jesus. And whatever we ask in his name, he'll do it for us. Let's wrap it all up. In conclusion, we could say it this way. We will carry on Jesus' work of pointing people to Jesus. We'll do it even to a greater extent than Jesus did. And we will have access to Jesus and we can ask him for whatever we need to carry on that work. These are profound promises we're not left alone we're not left alone or to say it another way the result of our faith whoever believes is to represent god not to create a man-centered representation look at me and the request of our faith when we're asking jesus for something is to glorify god not to glorify ourselves faith is god-centered not man-centered these verses are not man-centered of, I want to do greater works. Let me do signs and wonders and miracles. Yeah, how many people have turned them into those? I-, I want to just do really amazing, miraculous signs and wonders. These verses are a call to the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples and to us as well, to go out and to carry on the work of pointing to Jesus as better by far than anything this world has to offer. So, two questions in conclusion. Number one, do you believe in Jesus? These verses all have a condition. Whoever believes in me, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you know the bad news? Do you know that because you are a sinner, as all of us are, Romans 3.23 says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve the penalty for our sins. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is death. We deserve a penalty because of our sins. And that penalty is eternal wrath, separation from God forever in hell. That is terrible news. And that is news that all of us must face, must answer for. Because all of us are under the wrath of God. Remember John chapter three. If you do not believe in Jesus, then the wrath of God abides over you already. And I would not be a good shepherd If I did not once again just plead with you, if you are here this morning and you don't know that that God's wrath has been removed, that you are no longer abiding under the wrath of God, but you are abiding in Jesus Christ for eternal life, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent, to turn to Jesus, to admit that you are a sinner and you own that penalty and Jesus, by his grace and his love, came and he lived a perfect sinless life that you and I needed to live in order to get to God. And he died the death bearing the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. So that God the Father could treat Jesus as if Jesus had um, lived our sinful lives. So that he could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfection. And we get his blameless righteousness that's why we, we can say we are going to be faultless one day to stand before the throne of god on that day we have no need paul says to shrink back we won't be shrinking away we'll have confidence john tells us in first john two and three we have confidence to go before the throne because we are clothed in the righteousness of another do you believe in jesus do you believe in his death and his resurrection do you live in newness of life The second question is, if you do believe in Jesus, these verses are a challenge to our souls. Whoever believes in me will do these things, will do my works, and will do them to a greater extent than I have done. Do you represent your savior? Are you an ambassador for him? Do you turn conversations to point to Jesus? Would somebody on the outside looking at your life see your life with good works pointing to the fact that Jesus is better to you by far than anything in this world? Would they see your life pointing to the fact that he is more satisfying than anything this world has to offer? And this world has to offer a lot of good things. I'm not just talking about sin, talking about good, righteous, fun, enjoyable things that God has given to us to enjoy. And we say, yeah, if I lost all of it to live as Christ and to die as gain, I just need him. Do you know enough about Jesus to represent him? How well are you doing as an ambassador of Christ? Because these verses say, if we know him truly and believe him truly, we're going to live differently. But we need God's help to do that. And by God's grace, he is not saying in these verses, uh, you need to go do work. He's saying, I'm going to do the work through you. I'm going to give you a helper to carry out those works so that you can prioritize Jesus above everything, that you can live devoted lives, living and loving and, and enjoying the grace of God more than anything in this world. And showing the world, Jesus is my Lord, he's my Savior, and he is my life. Father, I thank you so much for these verses. I thank you for the the truth of your word that is clear. God, I pray that we would live as ambassadors of Jesus. Christ is our king, and we have been sent on mission. God, that's why we planted this church over three years ago. We've been sent on mission with the Great Commission, just as the disciples were given to go and to make disciples. And God, I praise you that that's happening, and I pray that it would continue to happen still more and more, excelling and abounding in work more and more. Also, that God would be glorified, and that the death and resurrection of our Savior would be magnified. We love Him, we cherish Him above all things, and we have been given a commission today to go to do the works that Jesus himself did, pointing to the truth. And may we ask in your name, filtering out all of the requests we would normally ask for in a fleshly state of mind, may we ask you, may we do it even now for your power to live out those works to point to Jesus above all things.